Well, good morning, everyone. A couple of weeks ago, I got to go on a family vacation, and I say I instead of we because it started with just the women, my daughter-in-law and daughter and, and the babies and my mom and myself, and we went to the beach, and that was followed three days later with uh, Jared and Jordan and Raleigh joining us, but that first day before we left, I packed my stuff and put my toiletries in a bag and left it on the bathroom counter, and apparently I really left it there because that night I got to the beach, and it was late before I really checked um, and discovered that I hadn't brought anything with me, and so except, except clothes, of course. And it's in those moments that you discover what's truly essential in life, right? And I discovered the one toiletry that is truly essential because I couldn't beg or borrow it from anyone. Right here, folks, the toothbrush, the toothbrush. That's right, all the stores were closed. There was no place to buy one, and this is the thing that I missed the most, that I couldn't manage to scavenge off somebody else. You know, whenever you talk about essentials, whatever the context for them, it always involves a sorting of a bunch of stuff to decide what's priority, what's the most important. And there's a, some of our kids here at E are really good at this and leaders in it. I want to tell you the story of one. This last week was up day for the kids. That means they got to move up if they'd progressed to grade in school or a year in life. Then some of them were changing classrooms, but some of them were just changing status. They were higher up in the, in the lineup of the classes. And one little girl was in grade school. Her name is Raina, and last week they received a Take 5 notebook where they got to be reminded to take five minutes a day minimum with Jesus, just spending time with him, and in it they could record things he showed them, they could write to him, they could write down scriptures that were meaningful to him. And so this past week, Raina was doing that, and she was writing a letter to Jesus, and she was telling him in the letter that he was her favorite. He was the top dog in her book. Well, she read this whole letter to her mom, and her mom noticed that at the end of the letter, she hadn't signed her name to it. And so she said, do you want me to write your name there at the end of it? And she said, oh, no, Mom, don't worry. He knows my name and everything about me. Now, Raina leads the way. She's a great example of she's identified the most essential relationship in her life, and she expressed it like a kid, Jesus you're my favorite. We're looking at the essentials of the faith in Jesus Christ through the book of Ephesians. And last week, Jared talked about the one-sentence praise that Paul did in verses 1 through 14. And this week, we're looking at a one-sentence prayer. Now, we're talking about in the original language. There was no periods or commas. This prayer was one long, strong-on sentence, just like last week the praise was. And as we look at it, there is one word that's embedded in this prayer that is the essential that we're looking at today. And it's this word know, or knowing, as I've put it. And this is living with, understanding, experiencing, and awareness of God and what he's done for us and what he wants to do in and through us. That's the essential that we're going to talk about today, knowing him. And I hope that at the end of our time that each of us, like Raina, would be able to tell Jesus, you're my favorite. You are the essential relationship in my life. Knowing you is the top priority. 
And to do that, we want to take a look at Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. And we're going to take a look at the first two verses, and I want to share a couple things with you. Then we'll take a look at the prayer itself. Because these first two verses, 15 and 16, are what I call the prelude to the prayer. Let's take a look. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. For this reason, Paul writes, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering or making mention of you in my prayers. Now, I was captivated by this word heard, that Paul took time to tell them what he'd heard about them. The first thing that struck him was, I want to be a person that's passing on the things I've heard about people. And I got to thinking, what have I heard about Evergreen as a community? What have I heard about you, about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints? I want to share that with you. First of all, I've heard about 80 years of trusting God together as a community and leading lots of people here, near, and far to Jesus. Whatever, whoever the leader was, there's been a constant in the life of this community of faith. And that's that helping lost people find God and loving lots of people in Jesus' name in the community and within the community has always been a trait here. I've heard of a woman who several weeks ago was praying for a job in the service. And as she was praying, she got a call on her phone. Now, her phone was on vibrate, so she didn't answer it. And she waited till she got to the lobby. It was toward the end of the service. And when she got out there, she looked, and it was her husband who had called. She was praying for a job for him. And he called to say that he'd gotten a job and that he started the next morning, Monday morning. I've heard from people who persisted in trusting God despite disappointments in their lives. I heard from people who are waiting it out in their marriages, waiting and trusting God to bring that spouse around to seeing their marriage commitment as important and central in their relationships. I've seen people trusting God with their adult children who are in the middle of making poor choices or difficult choices or their children at home who are making new decisions that are struggling to find their own faith. And I've seen lots of people here at Evergreen trusting God for his provision, trusting him for jobs in a difficult economic time, trusting him with his timing for his provision when it doesn't come exactly when we would have hoped for, but at just the right time. I've seen 180 people and heard about 180 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ this year just in our weekend services alone. And that doesn't count the people that you're sharing with day to day on the job and in your neighborhoods and on your work. And I've heard from people who are enjoying rich times in God's word for the first time in their lives as they're developing the habit of spending time with him personally. And what have I heard about your love for all the saints? Well, I've heard about a woman who has befriended a family in the apartment complex that she lives in, and they were evicted, and so she took in their 10-year-old son so that this year in school he could have a good start while they're finding their way to stability. I've heard about another person who, when they heard of the needs of this 10-year-old boy, they were here at Evergreen the next day supplying what this boy needed to have a great start to school. I've heard about the generosity of a community where more than 20% of what's received in the offerings goes out to give to people in need, here, near, and far. I've heard about some seniors who took out of their fixed incomes a portion of their funds and bought via that instant coffee drink from Starbucks to send to our missionaries in Uganda so they might have that one 
allotment a day that they'll allow themselves one cup of coffee a day that they can have even if the electricity goes out, as it usually is, because they can boil some water over a fire. I've heard about how some of you have connected with real needs out there in our communities, the communities that we represent here. In fact, one woman who saw an apartment complex a couple blocks from her house, and she saw tremendous needs there, and she was trying to figure out, what can I do? And she realized there's a lot of people in the community who are already doing things to help them. I'll network them together and get them connected with this apartment complex. And that's what she's done, and now she's on the board of one of those organizations that helps the neediest in our community. In Jesus' name, loving people. And I've heard about you from the principal at Mooberry Elementary, who a couple weeks ago, Brian, the new principal, who was the dean of students, so he knows about us, sent me an email and said, I hope we're going to continue the fabulous partnership that we have with the Evergreen community, and I hope that you can do even more this year. And I've heard about single parents who are touched by the assistance that some of you lent them by helping their kids with some of the startup costs for school, like school clothes and school fees. And I join Paul in saying this morning, I give thanks for you every time I think of you, and I can't quit doing that. I'm so proud of you, and we want you to know that. And now we haven't even gotten to the rest of his prayer. That was just the prelude. Can you hardly wait? That's right. So let's take a look at the one-sentence prayer that follows on the heels of him giving thanks for them. It starts in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Wow. I wonder what that was like when Paul was writing this or dictating this. I wonder if he took a breath anywhere in there or if he just broke down and started clapping and thanking God loudly and wildly. Well, this knowing, this word know that's in there repeatedly, knowing, understanding, experiencing, living with an awareness of God, having a fuller and fuller understanding of who he is and what he wants to do in my life that's gained only through personal relationship. It's a lot like a marriage. Jared and I met on September 3rd, 1968. I'll do the math with you because it's way too ancient, right? 43 years ago, he became my best friend. And even though through that we've had a close friendship, we eventually became engaged, we got married, I keep learning new things about him. Some of them are, might seem trivial to you, but really because he's the one I love, nothing is trivial in knowing that about him. And some of it's more meaningful stuff. I'll give you an example. Now, some of you know that he's a vegetarian, uh, not by 
philosophy, but by, that's his weight maintenance program, is trying vegetarianism. So I have learned some new things in the last few years. Now, when we got married, you know, you don't take a veggie quiz in your premarital counseling. You know, fill out the list, check the ones you don't like. Maybe we should add that. I don't know. Or at least if they say they're vegetarian, maybe we should. But he informed me when we got married, there were two veggies that he didn't eat. And he really didn't care if he ever smelled them again being prepared. And that was parsnips and turnips. He's a good farm boy. Well, I've carefully avoided those over the years. But it was only in this last couple of years that I discovered two more veggies that he doesn't like. And this is pretty miraculous because he likes pretty much everything otherwise. And that's radishes and cucumbers. Okay, so now I have his big four nose, right? But amazingly, I'd been putting cucumbers in salads for years and didn't realize that he didn't like them. I don't know how it got past me, but he lovingly ate them, I guess. Well, that's just one of the discoveries. It might seem trivial, but I get to love him more because I know that about him. And I've learned some other things about him as well. I've learned that we're two independent people that have our own definitions for collaboration, And each of us judging what the other one's one was. And it's only been in the last six months, honestly. That's amazing, isn't it? We've been married and done ministry together for years that we actually sat down and talked about it and, you know, wrestled that out and really came to appreciate how each other thought about that. And the other thing I've discovered about him, you know, I knew that he was a faithful man, that he loved God when we got married, or I wouldn't have married him. I knew that in one sense of the word. But I can tell you now in a deeper way, I know that he is faithfully committed to my best, even when it costs him. And it usually does. Yeah, that's right. That's what he's going. Yeah, it usually does. <laughs> Knowing God, it all starts with him, and it only happens in the context of relationship, just like our knowing each other has happened that way. The first thing that Paul prays for us is that we would experience the help of the Holy Spirit to know God better. He wants us to know that knowing God always starts with him, not us. Louis Giglio said this well in his book, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. He says, There's God's story already has a star, and it's not you or me. It's God. So spirituality that doesn't start with God completely misses the point because knowing God always starts with him. Now, a woman here at Evergreen, a good friend of mine, just shared her story with me this last week of coming to faith in Christ, and she was seeking the truth. She was searching for answers in her life, purpose and meaning, and this was in the era where the Bhagwan from Rajneesh Param over in Antelope, Oregon, that's now the site of an amazing camp, Uh, that glorifies God. Okay, that was his compound. And she decided that maybe he had the answers. He had the truth for her life. And so she collected with thousands of others to have her chance to ask a question of him. And they lined the path that he was going to come in on. And yes, people were throwing out flower petals and all other sorts of things in waiting for this Bhagwan to come. Well, she was anticipating answers for her life for the truth that she was seeking and the meaning she was seeking. And and finally, after a couple hours of waiting, he arrived. And the first person got to ask their question, to which the Bhagwan replied, look within yourself and you'll find the answer. She's like, okay. The second person asked their question, to which the Bhagwan replied, look within yourself and you'll find the answer. She was starting to get just a little bit suspicious 
You might say, but she'd come all this way, and she had such high hopes for getting some answers for her life. I've come all this way. I've waited all this time, and I asked my question, and it was her turn next. And she raised her hand, and she got to ask him. She asked her question, to which he replied, look within yourself, and you'll find the answer. She was completely disillusioned with the Bhagwan. She knew the answers were not within herself. That's why she was there to ask him. That's the point of Paul starting with praying for them to have the Holy Spirit come, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they could know God better because without him, we're sunk in getting to know him. It always starts with him. So the first thing we do in knowing is to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew 16, Peter had his own encounter with this Revelation and knowing always starts with God, not us. You see, they were having a conversation with Jesus, the disciples were, and Jesus asked them this question, who do people say that I am? And they started spouting off the answers that the crowd had, Elijah, a prophet, a great teacher. And he turned the question on him, and he said, yes, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter spoke up first, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus turned to him and said, Simon, Son of Jonah, flesh and blood, or man, people, have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's he's telling him in so many words, you didn't come up with this idea of who I am on your own. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Once again, reinforcing for us that knowing God always starts with him, that we depend upon him revealing himself to us. To see God, to really understand who he is and to live with an awareness of who he is always requires us to ask the same prayer that Paul's asking, that God's spirit would help us to get to know him better. But then Paul continues the prayer and he prays and highlights three specific areas that he wants us to know God better in. His calling, his inheritance, and his power. All three of these areas. Now attached to each one of these aspects of who God is and his work in our lives is a point of emphasis. So it's the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power that Paul wants us to grow in knowing him. So let's take a look at these three and unpack them a little bit together. First of all, the hope of his calling that he mentions there in verse 18. Paul loved to talk about calling. The word simply means invitation. And in this case, he's referring to the invitation that God is continually offering to each person on planet Earth that says, come to me. You're invited to be my son or daughter through a relationship with Jesus Christ who offers you that forgiveness. So it's that invitation that's being referred to. And have a relationship with your heavenly father this way and be part of his body, which is the church. But more specifically, he prays that we know the hope that's behind this calling. And this hope is an all-inclusive term in terms of time. That means this hope encompasses our past, our present, and our future. And this is where the real knowing comes into play. When you respond, when I respond to God's invitation to be his son or daughter, our past is forgiven. And God uses it or repurposes it. For his purposes. That's what redemption's really all about. Now, interestingly, it couldn't have been far from Paul's mind about his own story of his past. You see, in 
uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he refers to that, that he was, who was once a persecutor has now been given or made a servant of this gospel. And then he goes on to say, even though I am the least of all God's people. It was never far from his mind that he used to be a persecutor of those who knew Jesus. And now he was preaching so that others might know Jesus. And the hope that we have in that is that our past has been taken care of. It's been repurposed. That can't be held over your head, and there's a huge hope in that. So when you respond to God's invitation, your past is taken care of. There's a past hope that it's dealt with and can't come back and be laid on you again. But not only is your past forgiven, but your present is, is positively transformed when you respond to God's invitation, his call. Your leader has changed. You're, not, you're living under God's rule instead of Satan or self's rule. It's described as a kingdom of light rather than a kingdom of darkness. Your status has been changed. You're, you were a slave to sin, but now you're a son or daughter of God. And God's grace starts teaching us, it's a process, how to say no to sin. Your power base has changed. Your powerlessness over sin has been exchanged for the power of the one who's conquered death and hell. You've been freed now to make good decisions and choices in our lives. We can follow Jesus. That's part of the hope of his calling is that we have what we need, not within ourselves, but through him. He's called us that. Because we're a son or daughter, because we've responded to his invitation, we can honestly make new choices. So our present begins to be transformed and thirdly, then, he says that when you respond to God's invitation or call, not only is your past and your present altered, but your future becomes linked with his future, intimately linked with the creator of the universe in what Paul calls the blessed hope or blessed hope in Titus 2. We have a destiny, a purpose, and a grand future. Now, John gives us a glimpse of this in Revelation and there's a whole part of the book that uh, tells about the battle leading up to that. But in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, he gives just a little glimpse into what that future is going to include. And here's what he says in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Now the dwelling of God will be with men, and he'll live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We have an eternity with the God of the universe to look forward to, and it'll be experienced without the limitations that we're facing now. We'll enjoy a future with God and with each other, and it's going to be beyond our wildest dreams. Our future is one without any pain, without any sin, without any sorrow. It's blessed or good in every way, as Paul wrote. And it's this hope, this hope that takes care of our past, transforms our present, and gives us amazing grand future to look forward to. It's this hope that spurs us on to know Jesus better, that makes me want to grow in knowing him, that makes me want to keep pursuing him through the good times and through the hard times. John said it this way in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we shall be is not yet known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. This transforming hope. I have three friends uh, from my church planning era. We met a lot of amazing people and a lot of, uh, made a lot of deep friendships during that time. But three of my friends are Bob, Russ, and Jeff. And I want to tell you about them because they experienced the hope of his calling. See, Bob was in high school and in church. He used to come to church to please his mom at this point in his life. And he would party hardy the night before. And that included drinking in his case and maybe a few other things as well. And he would come to church. He'd shoot a little visine in his eyes thinking he was fooling his mom, which I, I have my doubts now that I'm a mom that he did that. But he shot visine in his eyes and he'd show up at church. But he still looked pretty bleary-eyed and he was generally hungover. But his pastor saw him and saw something in Bob, even through his, as he said, I'm an ADA boy, and started a conversation with him. And Bob responded to God's call and eventually was discipled and raised up as a church planter. So now fast forward, Bob's planted a church and it's month number two and he looks out in the group of people that have connected to this new church plant and he sees a 17-year-old boy named Russ and he recognizes the look in Russ's eyes. He said, Russ was bleary-eyed just like I had been all those years before. And so after the service, he went up and talked to him and he said, hey, after he learned his name, he said, you been drinking? And he said, yeah, of course, head down, eyes down body language of total uh, shame. He said, you hung over? Yeah. Well, I just wanted you to know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, brother. And something grabbed hold of Bob's heart, of Russ's heart. And Bob issued that invitation. He initiated with him about the call of God in his life and invited him to respond to Jesus, and he did. Fast forward nine years later. After discipling him and raising him up in leadership, he sent him out to plant a church at Harvard University on the East Coast. Okay, two months later into Bob's church plant, he just had a way. Now, you have to remember in a church plant, it's not hard to spot people, right? We're talking about starting from scratch here. So it's not like he was looking at thousands out here. But he spotted another, a 17-year-old boy, a senior in high school, and he saw the look again. This time he described it more like a deer in the headlights to me. And when he was looking at him, he thought, I'm going to check in with him after service. He checked in, found out that he was a senior in high school, and that he just found out that his sophomore girlfriend was pregnant. And he was scared and shaken. So Bob said, you know what? I can offer you one thing. I can offer you a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can take your past and forgive it and repurpose it. He can turn this for good in your life if you'll receive his forgiveness. And that day, Jeff received God's forgiveness. And the next week, that sophomore girlfriend came to church with Jeff, and she accepted Christ. Fast forward eight years after discipleship and marriage and five children later. And they were sent out as church planters from Bob's church. Bob's past was of a partier. And God repurposed his ability to spot those people because he had been them. This is what happens for Paul. He understood this as the hope of our calling. And so he could see them. He knew what they needed. That is the hope of our call in Christ, past, present, and future. He can redeem our past that thoroughly to where it becomes a strength in our ministry to other people and our help to other people. 
The more we know, experience, and understand and live with the hope of his calling, the more our life is transformed. Now, Paul goes on to describe a second area for us that he's praying for that we'd grow in our knowing, and that's the riches of his inheritance in verse 18. An inheritance here just means what we think it means, a portion, a possession. And it's the acquisition of something from someone upon that person's death. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't have a lot of experience with that except through our kids. And the inheritance that's being referred to here was set in motion by Jesus' death on the cross for us. But my experience through our kids has to do with our family. Jared's great uncle, Jared's uncle, Leonard, um, didn't have any children, he and his wife. His wife was a teacher, but they, they couldn't have kids. And so they made the great nieces and nephews their children. And when he died some years ago, he decided to leave a portion of his estate to all the nieces and nephews, which was not a small collection of people. And our kids, our son and our daughter, were two of those people that were named in, and they were going to inherit. Now, they didn't have anything to do with qualifying for this inheritance except for one thing, relationship. They had a relationship with Uncle Leonard. Otherwise, they didn't do a thing to receive it. They were in college at the time, and each one received a check for the same amount, $10,000. We've been qualified by our relationship with Jesus When we respond to his invitation and become a son or daughter of his, we get to share in his inheritance. And it's so much more than just a sum of money. Paul says it this way in another prayer. He said, I'm giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father qualified us. Just like our kids didn't have to do anything. They didn't go visit Uncle Leonard a whole bunch of times. They didn't say, we love you, Uncle Leonard. But they were his great nieces and nephews, and by virtue of that. And because you're a son or a daughter, you get to partake in this rich inheritance. It's the wealth of God himself that's being referred to here. The riches of his grace that Jared talked about last week, that he's lavished upon us. The riches of his mercy that are new every morning and allows us to start with a clean slate. The riches of his glory, which amazingly he's decided to put on display through our lives, as frail and fragile and flawed as we might be. That's where he's displaying his glory, and that's rich. And the riches of eternal life, when we're finally going to realize that victory over death that Jesus Christ purchased for us, and we're going to be reunited together with each other and with many others who have gone before us. And the riches of an abundant life, that allows us to spend today and eternity in the presence of a perfectly loving Heavenly Father and the riches of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid a debt He didn't owe so that we could be co-heirs with Him and share the inheritance with us. Peter tells us in his first letter that this inheritance is also partially future and that it's been reserved or kept in heaven for us and that the Holy Spirit's just our down payment. Paul's praying that we would know, experience, live with the awareness of the riches of our inheritance. Because when we do, we're humbled by God's extravagant love. See, there are no Cinderella's in God's family. There's no second-class citizens. And no one will ever be written out of the will. Wow. 
Let's take a deep breath for a moment, even if Paul didn't. And because the remainder of his prayer focuses on God's incomparably great power. And that might just blow our minds in these next few minutes because he's amazing. His power, the incomparable greatness of his power that he refers there in verses 19 through 23. Paul's focus for the Ephesians in his prayer for them is that we would know how great his power is. And he uses a word that no other New Testament writer uses to describe that power. And it's translated incomparably. But what it really means is when it comes to power, God is in a league of his own. That he is beyond comparison with anyone else. That he's in a whole other sphere beyond anyone else. And you can almost feel Paul's passion and intensity as he begins to describe this power that he's praying for us to know. Because he uses every synonym for power that's at his disposal. Four different Greek words to describe what is seemingly beyond description. All of them found in one verse, verse 19. And he translates them power, power, working, and strength. Let's take a look at these four words because each one highlights something different about God's power for us. The first word emphasizes the capability and potential for God's power, that it's unlimited. That means there's no ceiling on it. So the only ceiling for God's power in our lives is, you guessed it, us. We're the ones who put the ceiling, the cap on it. It's just this much. There's enough to do this, but not this. Because it's unlimited. The second word emphasizes the operational power of God. That, that, that God's power operates in our lives to transform us. And it's the same word that Paul used to describe the power that changed his life. In chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, I who was a persecutor, I've been made a servant of this gospel of grace. By the power of his grace. Same words being used here. And then the third word for power is a word that emphasized the strength that we have to resist, that God's power has the strength to resist the things that come against it. And it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 6, verse 10, when it says, finally, be strong in the Lord. It's this word for strength that it happens under resistance and control. And maybe you've done resistance training, but that's the picture I have in my mind. When you hold that weight and you hold it in place for 10 minutes, and there's that weight trying to push your arms down, but you're holding it up. It's that resistance against that force that would come against you. God's power has the strength to stand against all the strategies of the enemy and all the temptations that we might face. And the third word, I mean, excuse me, the fourth word is that God's power is inherent meaning that it's permanent. It's not fleeting or temporary. It's a part of who he is. And what does that tell us? That his power is always accessible and always available. It never runs out. It's never going to leave us. And it's the second word for power that's used in Ephesians 6.10 there when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, his inherent power, who he is. As we take our place in him. In other words, God's power in our life has unlimited potential. Helps us live a transformed life. Gives us strength to resist the enemy. And is permanently accessible and available. Wow. He truly is the almighty father. One of his titles. And that's who we were and are linked up with. 
when we believe. I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for less. When I first came to faith in Christ, I was surrounded by my own example and the examples of those around me of living what is a very natural life. And I got to watch a lot of people bungle around because I was just a kid. So, you know, the adults did a good job of it and us kids did our own little things. But some of the adults around me were making plenty fine messes. I saw what the natural life could bring. And I understood when I came to faith in Christ that there was a power available to me to live a life that looked different than the culture around me, that I could actually be different. Now, Dave Ramsey does this thing of be weird. And I actually like the campaign because what he's saying is stand against the flow of the culture. And he's talking about finances. He's saying, you know, a huge majority of the culture in developed worlds is in debt above their head. You'd say above their eyeballs. He said, be weird and live on less than you make so you can give more. That's standing against the flow of the culture. Jesus stands up and says, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who speak poorly of you or curse you. Forgive. How many times? 70 times 7. Every time they ask, endlessly. That's radical. That's the supernatural life. And that's why us growing and knowing and understanding his power and experiencing it and living with an awareness that it's always available, that it's always accessible, and that all I have to do, and this is what I learned just as a new believer, and it's what I have to keep on doing all my life, all I have to do is ask. All I have to do is ask. And I learned this from Peter. Favorite prayer. Joe talked about it several weeks ago when he was sharing with us on prayer. It's that one-word prayer. Help. Help. I experienced that this last week. I was overwhelmed. I woke up at 3 in the morning. I had a ton of things on my mind. I knew I was carrying too much. My strength was at its end. Now, I should have got there sooner. I should have asked for help sooner, but I was a lot like Peter. I was sinking in the waves before I asked for help. But that's all we have to do to access that power. And so I prayed and asked God to help me. And he showed me a wonderful scripture that had to do with humbling myself and quieting my soul like a weaned child leans against its mom. That's what he asked me to do. And in that, he asked me to just give him everything that was weighing me down. You know that whole to-do list that was way too long? I just named that off to him. All the things that were weighing me down. And it's then I asked for the Holy Spirit to fill me with his power. Paul says in this same letter, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we access God's power. That's his operational power at work in our lives. It's as simple as a prayer away, and we can ask him for it. So knowing, living, experiencing the greatness of his power changes our lives. And Paul didn't stop there. He finishes the prayer, giving us God's greatest demonstration of this power at work here on planet earth, something they could relate to. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then his exaltation to a place of highest authority at the right hand of the Father. You want to know how high Jesus Christ is in the power rankings? Well, he's got Forbes' list beat by a long shot. He really does. 
It has nothing on him. He goes on, he uses a variety of words for authority here to denote various levels and arenas of authority. But he caps it all with this comprehensive phrase that Jesus Christ is far above every title that can be given now or in the future. He's covering all the bases here. Jesus Christ is supremely powerful, having authority that's higher than any other title, both now, in the future, and for all time. And that everything is under his feet, a reference to a psalm, Psalm 8, 6, where, it's, where God declares this earlier, that everything would be placed under his feet, a place of supreme authority. Jesus, he goes on to say, is the head of the church over everything for the church, which is his body. And then he gives us this amazing metaphor that the head connected to the body, it's this mind-body connection that he uses, the most powerful most intimately connected metaphor he could have used for us. Because we know that without a head, a body doesn't operate. It doesn't live. It's not sustainable. And he's saying that's how vital our connection is to Jesus Christ and to his power and authority. And when we're connected to him, everything he has is under him and in our lives, operational in our lives. We have access to all of his power and authority as we stay connected to him. And that's who we're linked up with when we say yes to Jesus. The song that we sang, our last song going into worship, there is no one higher, there is no one greater, there's no one like our God. There's none more able, Christ our Savior, great and glorious. That's the refrain here at the end of the prayer. Well, Raina led the way, she understood the essential that knowing Jesus was the top relationship in her life. She described it as her favorite. And our kids continue to lead the way. A couple weeks ago, Macy, our student ministries pastor, Kevin Hughes and, and Emily Hughes, their five-year-old daughter, and she's in her last year of preschool, and she was having her fifth birthday, and they looked ahead. She's crazy about Taylor Swift and her songs, and they got her tickets to the concert. And uh, Emily took her to that concert a couple weeks ago here in September. And... The concert was several hours. They had a Christian band that played the lead-in to Taylor Swift and then Taylor Swift. So it was like four and a half hours. And she was wondering if her daughter's love for Taylor Swift had been dimmed at all by the long evening. And so she said, you know, Macy, do you still love Taylor Swift? And she said, yes, Mommy, but I love Jesus a lot more. Just like Raina, she'd done her sort. And she knew that knowing Jesus was tops, was the most important. And that's what we're inviting you today to consider. Maybe today you're like the, the people that Paul was praying for. Some of them already had responded to God's invitation. And today you've just been wondering whether your past was, could really be brought into that future hope. You know, is it really true that it's forgiven and that you can't hardly believe that your past could be repurposed, that God could actually use it? And in fact, maybe you've been struggling with it hanging over your head, that thing that you did that you've always regretted. That's the very thing that, like Paul's life, God wants to take and redeem, and he can use it in your life now. Don't let Satan hang that over your head. Maybe you're that person that's always felt like Cinderella or like the, the second-class citizen and, you know, God likes to do good things for other people, but it's not part of my life. That inheritance, how could it be that simple? 
that I just become the inheritor of everything as I respond to his invitation. And maybe today you're the person that's put a ceiling on God's power in some area of your life. Maybe you've been, like I was last week, trying to do way too much on your own strength. And you just need to come this morning and as I pray, say, help. And here's where I need your power to operate in my life this week, God, or today. And today, if you've not made a decision, if you, you're like Bob or Russ or Jeff, God can take you from being a heavy-duty partier to a planter of churches. That's the kind of transformation that's available in him. That's the kind of life change that he offers you today. He can move you from a totally natural life with predictable outcomes to an incredibly supernatural life with amazing adventure and great outcomes and eternal life with him. And if that's you today, I want to invite you to just say yes to him. Say yes to his forgiveness. Say yes to his invitation to you. It's, it's as simple as responding to an invitation to a wedding, to a party, to a friend's house for dinner. He loves you. He's waiting for you today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus. And today that's our prayer, Lord. I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would understand or know what are the hope of our calling, the riches of your inheritance, and the incomparably great power that you have for us who would believe you. Lord, we welcome that today. Help those of us, Lord. We just say help to you in the areas where we need your power in our lives this week. Your strength your ability to resist temptation, your ability to live out a decision that's better than what we've been. Lord, help us this week where we need your hope, your hope that believes that our past can really be an asset to our future and not a liability. Thank you for helping us with that. And Lord, help us this week to really know the riches of your love this week. Lord, I pray for anyone here who feels second class that somehow... They need to do something else besides just be your son and daughter to inherit the amazing things you want to bring into our life. We welcome your riches this week, Lord. And then, Father, we just say yes to you today. We say yes to your invitation to be your son or your daughter. Yes to your forgiveness. We want to be your child today. So we can join in with Jesus Christ and be a co-heir with him. Thank you, Lord. Just with our heads bowed, I just want to give an opportunity for anyone here today that hasn't made that decision. It's a great decision to make, and the Lord works with us and shows us himself little by little, just like a marriage relationship, so you don't have to know it all today. It's just if you know that much that God loves you, that he forgives you, and you want to say yes to that much, he'll take you at that point. And if that's your decision today, I invite you to raise your hand and look at me so I can just agree with you. It's an opportunity to agree and to celebrate your decision. I'm looking off to my left, your right, and I'm just going to swing my eyes across the congregation and see if there's anyone who would like to make that decision, and I'll agree with you. Looking across the center. I'm looking now across to my left, your, I mean my right, your left. Father, we're so grateful to you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the hope of your calling.